1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You do the crime, you do the time. This is a rhyme that resonates with our basic sense of justice. Those who do wrong should be punished. Now, Christians are called to love criminals, but we still believe that wrongdoers should be held accountable by the governing authorities. And we touched on this being the purpose of government a bit earlier in verses 13 through 17 here in 1 Peter 2. However, not all who are doing time have done the crime. We see this reported in the news occasionally when someone is exonerated of a crime after new evidence emerges. We also recollect how certain figures have been unjustly imprisoned, such as Martin Luther King Jr. when he was thrown into solitary confinement in Birmingham for violating an ordinance against public gathering that was meant to crush the civil rights movement. We recall how the apostles Paul, John, and Peter all endured unjust imprisonment for promoting the gospel. These all suffered for doing good. And this reminds us of just how broken our world is. It's bad enough that there exists wickedness that should be punished. But worse than this, those who wield earthly power to reward or punish are sometimes found punishing those who do good. Maybe you have suffered for doing the right thing. Maybe this is not just one time, not just a one-time thing for you. Rather, an ongoing relationship with someone, a workplace that pinches you for doing what is right. Peter has some guidance for us this morning, but his instructions take us out of the 21st century and back into the first century world of the Roman Empire. There is a historical distance that must be recognized if we are going to avoid confusion. But covering this gap, we'll find that Peter still has something to say to us today. So starting off in verse 18, Peter addresses slaves. Now, this word in the original Greek is oiketes, which um, the word oikos is the Greek word for house, so it's 
kind of suggesting someone who's a house slave. But the word slave could be alternatively um, translated as servant. So he's addressing slaves or servants. Now, you could have servants that you know, were paid, but more than likely, he's addressing those who are slaves and who are receiving no payment for their services. Um, these are people that have um, either been born into slavery, they've been uh, sold into slavery by someone else, they've maybe sold themselves into slavery, kind of a debt situation, either by your family or on your own part, or they may have been enslaved as part of um, the Roman Empire's campaigns um, in which they were spreading the empire and bringing foreign peoples back uh, to the capital um, as slaves. When we hear that, slave, our mind is immediately filled with images that are most recent to us in our own history as Americans. We're taking back to um, the early foundings of our country in which you had Africans who were enslaved in order to serve our pursuits as a nation. And it's a, it's a terrible history. It's a, it's a history that sh strikes right against the claims of the founding of our country, which we say that all men are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there's something that we need to understand here, and which we'll see as we go along, that that slavery which fills our mind, is of a different order than the slavery that Peter is encountering here. Now, I'm not going to say that the slavery that he's encountering here isn't bad, because it is, but it's different. And I think we get that sense because when we look at the words of Jesus and at the words of Paul, they're very comfortable calling us slaves of God. And if there was such a negative connotation which we associate with that word, based on our history. If that was the sort of connotation that was present back in that time, I really don't think Jesus and Paul would have used that word um, because it's just entirely abusive in our own history. There's no sort of good sense of it. Um, we see Jesus talk about this in Matthew 24, 45, Luke 16, 13, talking about you know, being a steward, a servant of the household, um, Paul, Paul picks up on it in Romans 14 as well. So just to take us back into this history, though, the first century, I have a little graphic of the Roman Empire to help kind of fill your imagination here. Um, it suggested that 10 to 20% of the population of the Roman Empire uh, was made up of slaves, so you're talking about 5 to 10 million people. Um, what's kind of interest, interesting to me is that when you look at our own um, kind of demographics today as a nation, if you look at those who are kind of at the lower end of the pay scale, a third of the people in our country um, are making minimum wage. Um, that, that's based on a report in 2022. Um, so the thing that we have to appreciate about during this time in the Roman Empire in ancient times 
they didn't have McDonald's for people to work at. Um, you were either someone that was very wealthy, or maybe you were a merchant, kind of like a business owner. And if you weren't that, your working opportunities were pretty limited. Um, and so you were kind of, especially those that sold themselves into slavery, they were basically making a deal, like, okay, I'll work for you, you provide for my board and keep. Um, but the thing that's strikingly different about slavery at this time from slavery in our, in our own recent history is that it was completely racially diverse. It really had nothing to do with race. You could be a Roman um, and be a slave um, if it came to it, especially if you were indebted. Um, the other thing that um, is different is that slaves were often freed um, from their slavery um, after serving for 10 to 15 years or so. They were able to gain manumission, kind of a fancy word. They were able to buy, they were either able to buy their freedom because they were able to earn money or their masters would free them. Um, some people, you know, I'm not, that wasn't the case for everybody. Um, some were only freed upon the death of their master. Um, and as far as my research goes, it suggested that people weren't able to be freed usually until they were past the age of 30. But, but the, just the other thing that just kind of indicates just how different things were back then in this regard is that someone would be able to be freed, they'd be able to become a citizen. They couldn't hold political office, but their children could. And so you have someone like this fellow named Pertinax, who in 193 AD became Roman emperor. Um, and he was the son of a slave. Um, he was only emperor for a few months. They got a lot of power dynamics going on there. But I mean, that's really striking that your father was a slave and then you go on to be emperor of the Roman Empire. When you think about our own history, that's completely unimaginable, that one generation removed, removed from African-American slavery that a son or daughter would have been able to become president of the United States. It took many more generations for that to even become imaginable. So now with those differences in mind, just about some of the possibilities that were available to those who were slaves at that time versus those who were enslaved in our own recent history who had no, like very little, any possibilities of becoming free. They had to run away. Um, we also now have to consider some of the political circumstances of the Roman Empire. It was not a, it was not a democracy. It was a republic, so to speak, um, but it was really kind of an autocracy um, where the emperor was really doing whatever he wanted at this point in history. Um, and so um, it, it was often marked by peace but it was a peace that was established by an iron fist. So that if you stepped out of line, if you rebelled against the empire, you got crushed. And so when you think about the Christians at this time, they're not a powerful political group. It's not like the evangelical block of voters that we have in the United States. This is a disempowered group of people um, among whom are slaves, I mean, this is why Paul's addressing them, is because there are slaves that are Christian, who are Christians, and 
So for them, step out of line and suggest like some kind of imperial reform, basically kind of giving, laying the groundwork for like a slave rebellion, it would have resulted in all of them being immediately probably crucified, beheaded if they were citizens. Um, so if you consider this, you consider the consequences and the lack of real political opportunities at this time. And then you also consider how slavery at this time was different in, in some important ways from American slavery in terms of some of the opportunities that were available and some of the conditions in which a person came in, into um, becoming a slave. You add those things together and then also add the expectation of Christ's soon return. It's not a real big surprise that you don't find Peter here really encouraging slaves to like run away and try to gain their freedom in that kind of way um, or to overthrow the empire. And you can imagine you know, they're, they're thinking about what Jesus has taught them and how Jesus responded when he was suffering unjustly. Jesus' words to Pilate in John 18, 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my, now my kingdom is from another place. So, you know, the, the apostles, they're thinking about Jesus. Okay, we saw Jesus unjustly crucified. We didn't pick up arms in that case. So if we didn't start a rebellion then, we're not going to start a rebellion now. But that doesn't mean that serious things aren't going on here because there's been a radical heavenly reform which has taken place. And what you see is, is the kingdom of God being manifested in the church as these divisions that are defining the society that they're living in are utterly torn down. In Colossians 3.11, Paul says, Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. There's a radical equality. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, or even if you're a master, if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what race you are. Everyone is of equal worth and value before God in Jesus Christ because we've been bought at that great price of his sacrifice. And this is reflected practically in the life of the church because slaves could become leaders in the church. And so even if you know, they're made to serve masters outside of the church, in the church they're able to to kind of break all the expectations of their society. So on the one hand, you have these transformed relationships within the church. And on the other hand, you know, as they're living in the midst of this society, Peter, Paul, seem to instruct the church to accept this as kind of a given societal reality. And as I was thinking about this, I was kind of thinking almost... Jesus, when Jesus observed, the poor will always be among you. I think in their mindset at that time, they just simply could not imagine a world in which you would have socioeconomic conditions in which slavery would not 
exist. I think in their minds there would always be people that were born or enslaved, born enslaved or would sell themselves into slavery. Um, now they were expecting that all of that would be eradicated when Christ returned and the kingdom of God was established. But as far as within human reforms, I just don't think they really imagined that coming to pass. And they certainly were not in a position to bring that to pass in their time. And so what we see going on here is really kind of heavenly realities and earthly realities living side by side. Now, I don't want you to think that, um, that the New Testament's perspective on slavery is all just kind of whatever. Because um, Paul, in, in, in several places, makes it clear that um, he's not a huge, he's not a fan of it. Um, and he actually um, has some strong words of condemnation. So in, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 11, um, Paul has this list of all, all these people who are basically ungodly. And it's interesting because he includes among them slave traders. So he says, we, know, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So notice what Paul's saying here as far as slavery goes. The slave trade is completely counter to sound doctrine. It's completely counter to the gospel. And if you know your history, that's the entire basis of the slavery that we saw take place here in America. People were stolen from their homelands and made to move here and live as slaves. Paul condemns that, right along with murderers and all kinds of other, other sins. We, saw, we see also, when Paul is speaking to those who are living in slavery, how he really does have a preference against them living in slavery. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 through 24, he says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And this is kind of Paul's perspective on everything. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. And now, you know, in talking about slaves, just remain where God has called you. When, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So what Paul's saying here is, is he doesn't want them to feel like because they've become a Christian, they've really got to like, bust out of the situation that they're in. He doesn't want them to be burdened by that. At the same time, though, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Do it. And then he goes on to say this, for the one who is a slave when called to, the faith, to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. So again, that heaven reality alongside this earthly reality. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So Paul's being pretty explicit there. If you can avoid being 
It's slaves. Do not do that. Because God has called you to freedom. And then just one other passage that I want to take you to um, is in Philemon. Now, Philemon is a very short letter. It's a letter that Paul writes to this fellow Philemon, um, his brother in the faith. And he's writing him because um, he's become acquainted um, with this Christian named Onesimus. And Onesimus had been a slave of Philemon, but he had ran away. And while he had been on the, on the run, basically, from Philemon, he became a Christian. And so Paul is now writing to Philemon saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but things are going to be different. <laughs> things are going to be different. In Philemon 1, verses 15 through 21, he says, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So notice, you know, you're talking about a, a practice that dehumanizes people. He's affirming as your fellow man, but even more than this, as your brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you, O Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. I just love what Paul does here. He has no problem calling in all the favors. He's like, you kind of owe me, buddy, so you better treat him right. And some commentators even suggest that when Paul says, knowing that you will do even more than I ask, he might even be suggesting here that he's calling for Philemon to grant him his freedom. Now, as it turns out, over time, the reality of the kingdom of God, that those who come to Christ are freed in Christ, that there's neither slave nor free, and then just the biblical notion that every human person is created in the image of God and bears that dignity, all those beliefs came to reshape Western society. And so you kind of have a fulfillment of you know, the Lord's Prayer where we, we pray that God, God's will would, be, will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in the first century, that seemed out of reach, but over time, that possibility began to emerge. And I think it's important for us to remember that the position that we stand in today, where we can say, oh yeah, slavery, like that's terrible, that absolutely should not happen. That's not, just a, that's not a natural position you arrive at. That's the inheritance that we've received in Jesus Christ and how he has radically transformed this world. It's the miracle of Western society that can't be assigned to particular philosophers because the philosophers got their idea from Jesus. Apart from this, we have no reason to expect that we would have been any better than the Romans. Apart from Jesus, we would expect that slavery would still be going on today. And I'm not saying there are parts of the world where it's still going on, you know, sex slavery and other things, so I'm not denying that that happens. But at the level that we see it happening here institutionally, it would still be ongoing, especially in the Western sphere. 
Now, I, I think, ironically, very ironically, American slavery reveals that practice, uh, reveals that progress, because we know that the practice of slavery is dehumanizing, um, but when you get to American slavery, how Americans tried to justify it is by dehumanizing those that they enslaved. And, and the reason why is because they had all this Christian framework in place, and so they had to look for a loophole because um, they were living within this framework that had been transformed by Jesus, this, this framework that says love your neighbor as yourself. And the only way you can get around that is by not denying that someone else is your neighbor. So we have to have all of this, all these things in mind when, when we hear Peter call slaves to submit. We have to understand the historical distance there, a different situation that they were in, and also appreciate that everything that we enjoy today, everything that we affirm is true, that people should not be enslaved, it's because of this. It's because of Jesus and how he's, made, how he's making things new day by day. Um, when, when Peter calls slaves to submit here, he's not calling them to submit because they're inferior. That's not the reason he gives here. He says, but to honor God. It's so that they would fear God and honor God by doing good. And we see that Paul also says this, and it's interesting because he has comments both for slaves and for masters. Peter doesn't talk about masters here. But in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So that's everything pretty much that Peter's saying here. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And then you get to verse 9. He says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Remember, there's neither slave nor free. All are of equal worth and value before God. There is no favoritism. So Paul's putting the masters on notice here. And when you look to Colossians 3, we see that when he's saying that there's no favoritism, what Paul's indicating is that God's going to judge those who, who act wrongly against others. In Colossians 3, verses 22 through 25, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be, will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And I, th I think, when Paul's saying anyone here, I think that's inclusive of slave and master. It's all people. God shows no favoritism. So if you're suffering, so in this context, if you're a slave and your master has wronged, wronged you, God's going to hold that master to account on the final day. Now, again, when we think about everything that they're teaching here, 
this whole arrangement just doesn't really jive with even Roman slavery, and especially not with American slavery. Um, Denny Burke, um, who's a professor of biblical studies at Boyce College, um, offers this comment on, on these kinds of passages. He says, what kind of slavery is it that tells a master to give up threatening and to treat his slaves like his brother? Again, it's not Roman slavery. It's nothing like slavery in the American South. So the Bible isn't endorsing either one of those. This is something else entirely. And that is why slavery cannot continue where the kingdom of God holds sway. The Bible completely undermines all the defining features of slavery. Kidnapping, coercive violence, treating people like property, rather like brothers created in the image of God. So, slavery, we understand everything that has been said in these passages is not the ideal. It's a condition of, of, of this broken world, but because of Jesus, it's become transformed in much difference in the context of the first century. So now let's take ourselves into the present today. We look at today, and we want to think, how can this passage apply to us? Well, I think it, it can connect with the employer-employee relationship. Now, it's probably being hyperbolic to call that a condition of slavery, although sometimes you know, you're in a job and you're kind of locked into it. You can't get out of it because of maybe some of the economic situations that, that you're in. And so sometimes it can feel like, like you're enslaved to that job. Um, what does Peter tell us? What does he say we ought to do um, in the workplace? Well, I think what he's saying is, is that we need to serve our employers with God in mind. We need to serve them like we were serving Christ. In other words, do our best. And, and, and not just when you have a, a good boss. You know, Peter says here, not just when you have a good master, but even the ones who are cruel. Um, now, it's, it, that's, that's something that's really difficult for us to do. And it seems completely unreasonable to do unless you see your service to them as service unto God and unto Christ. Now, something else that Peter points out here is, is that we shouldn't think that any of the suffering that we endure is of any of any worth of worth any commendation if it's because we've been acting out of line. So if your if your workplace is giving you grief because you've been showing up late or cutting corners or because you have a bad attitude, like you can't read this passage and say like, oh, I'm being just like Jesus. I'm suffering so much. Um, what's commendable is when you suffer for doing good. When you're doing your best and you're still treated wrongly. It's commendable when you hold fast. You don't, you know, you do what's good and you keep on doing what's good rather than just saying, okay, now I'm going to act differently. Um, you bear up, you endure. Now, but the question is, is, is why would you do that? Why would you keep doing your best, doing what's right, when those above you are at their worst? 
Peter says it's because of Jesus. We move on to verses 21 through 25. Peter tells us that we are called to be willing to suffer because Jesus was willing to suffer for us. Now, why did Jesus suffer? Jesus suffered in order to save and restore us. He made of himself a sacrifice for our sakes. And so because of that, we are forgiven. And so we also can become the people of God. And I think it's that edge, especially thinking about us becoming the people of God, that we are called to suffer just like Jesus. We see this in the epistles of the Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 11 through 14. It says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high, high, holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And we are those people that he's making holy by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Jesus has gone outside the gate. Jesus has borne disgrace. He's suffered in order to make us a holy people. And so now we go and follow in his footsteps. And the reason why we can have this attitude is because we understand that our lasting city is not here. If this is all we got, you better believe I'm going to, you know, fight tooth and claw and all of that for if, if this is all we've got. But we have no enduring city here. And so we follow Jesus outside the gate. Christ makes us holy people, the kind of people who go outside the gate with him. And so this is why Peter says in verse 21 that Christ suffered so that we might follow in his steps. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't ever seek escape. It doesn't say that here. And remember what Paul said to the, those who were slaves. He said, if you can get your freedom, take that opportunity. But you can't always escape suffering. Sometimes you'll be in workplaces or in relationships that you need to leave because of abuse. But maybe you can't leave in that exact moment. So how are you going to handle yourself until then? You should look to Christ. Everything that Peter says in verses 22 through 25 is drawn from Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 9. There we hear the prophet prophesy of the suffering servant who is Jesus. He says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and he was held in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So you have that as your background there. Now you look at verses 22 through 25, and Peter's picking up on this explicitly. He sees how, he points out, you know, Jesus, he committed no sin when he was suffering. He didn't, he didn't use the suffering that he was enduring as a, an excuse to stop doing what is good. He did not deceive other people, even though other people were acting dishonestly with him. He did not reta- retaliate. He did not make threats. Rather, he entrusted himself to the Father as judge. This is kind of our instructions about what we're supposed to do. Now, I think the thing is, is we're tempted to do the complete opposite. I've got kind of a comparison up here um, that has those side by side. Next. Yeah. So we have... This is the way of Jesus. You know, don't do these things. Do entrust yourself to God. But what do we do when we start to suffer? When we suffer, we're tempted to sin in response. We're tempted to begin deceiving other people. Oh, you're going to treat me badly? Then I'm not going to tell you everything, and maybe you'll get whacked because of the information I don't tell you. Um, we want to retaliate when someone does something wrong to us. We want to start making threats. And all of this is symptomatic of the fact that we do not trust God. See, everything flows from these two bottom things here. If you don't trust God, you're going to do all these things. If you do trust God, if you trust yourself to Him, then it's possible for you to go through terrible situations and not commit sin not resort to deceiving or retaliating against other people. Now, you might, maybe you're still asking, well, why not handle, why not just handle things our own way? It often feels good. It feels good to retaliate against other people. Well, Peter indicates that would be kind of missing the entire point. And he follows all this up. This is kind of like, again, our instructions about what we're supposed to do. And he follows it up in verse 24 by saying this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, you've been saved to be different than those broken souls that are trying to make your life miserable. You are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. You've been healed by Jesus. You're no longer doing things your way. You're no longer going astray because you've been brought to the way of Jesus. He is your shepherd. The shepherd who guides you through the pack of snarling wolves. He is your true overseer. He's your true boss. The one whose approval is more important than any other human overseer you might have. You see, your rule is simple. 
Everything you do, you do as unto God. You do as unto Jesus Christ. And living like this, we show the world that there is a higher judge we must all answer to. Human authority must answer to divine authority. And we see the marks of this 2,000 years later as we live in a Western society that has abolished institutional slavery. This was realized because of our Christian foundation, the conviction that human greed and power must answer to God. Now, unfortunately, I think we're forgetting this gradually. We claim these protections while we abandon their foundation, cutting off the branch of Christian truth upon which Western society sits. You and I, as followers of Christ, stand against that tide. We live mindful of God, mindful of his judgment. We follow the way of the shepherd, not our own way. <coughs> we live lives that can begin to brew something new in our workplaces and in our society. The ferment of Jesus Christ who does what is good and right no matter the cost. In fact, at the cost of his life. By his grace, so shall we. Let us pray. Father, today's passage has reminded us of the brokenness of this world. Of the great wrongs that we inflict upon one another including enslaving each other for our own ends. And Father, when we see such terrible sins across the pages of our history and even into the present, we want things to immediately change. Father, we know that that's not how things work themselves out in this world. That your way, the way of the kingdom of God, is like yeast working out through dough. It's like a small seed, a mustard seed that grows into a great plant, a great tree. And this is what we've seen, Father. That by transforming our relationships with, another, with one another in Jesus Christ, you have now transformed the world. The Father, sin persists. And so we pray that you would help us as we stand in positions similar to those 2,000 years ago um, who had cruel masters, Father, as we deal with employers and other authorities, Father, who are cruel and unjust to us, we pray that we would be like your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would continue doing good because we live our lives unto you 
not not unto any man. Father, help us to trust ourselves to you because we know that our city is not here. The city here does not endure. We look for the city which is to come. Give us that faith, Father, so that we may follow after Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.